Welcome to My Favorite Family Heirloom. I'm Carolyn. Today we're going to delve into some family letters, unearth some skeletons in the closet, and find out how to care for paper collections. Let's get started, shall we? Okay, let's talk to our co-host, Jeff. We're going to look at some of his family heirlooms, and we're going to start off with these letters that he has. Should we talk about the letters? Hi, Jeff. Hi, Carolyn. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Okay. Describe your letters. All right. So these are, uh, it's a group of letters that my great-grandmother Frances wrote. Um, they're all handwritten in pencil, and they're all written between the early 1920s and the mid-1930s. And they're, uh, they're all correspondence between my great-grandmother Frances and her father, Nick Hartland. Tell me about how you first found out about the letters. Well, we together kind of started researching my family genealogy back around the holidays of 2015, and we kind of unearthed some scandalous stories in my family's past, and so we started digging through my uh, family's background, and I took a trip home uh, in April, actually, and uh, met with my grandmother, and she had a bunch of family photos, and with those photos were these groups of letters from my great-grandmother. Tell me about who's mentioned in the letters. Well, besides Frances and her father, um, she also mentions her first husband, Robin Thompson, uh, Frances' second husband, Clarence White, uh, and also their children. So my grandfather, Don, and his sister, Edie, are mentioned in the letters as well, uh, as well as some other relatives. Uh, Frances's brother, Martin, is, is mentioned as well. What do we need to know to set the stage for these letters? Well, uh, growing up around Hinkley, which is a little small town in Minnesota, just north of the Twin Cities, um, I always assumed my family was just involved in that area. Um, and so I kind of always thought these family stories that I know about my relatives took place around Hinkley, but the letters kind of prove that's not really true. Um, so in fact, um, Rather than just being around the Hinkley area, my family kind of traveled all over Minnesota and into other states, uh, Montana, and into North Dakota as well. And what about that surprised you? Um, mostly just because I, I never really realized that uh, these relatives from my past lived anywhere else other than rural Minnesota. And so you get kind of a, a wide, uh, wide range of locations that are mentioned in the letters themselves. How do these letters tie into what you already knew about your family members? Um, it actually kind of shed a lot of light on my family's past because um, my grandfather really never knew his father or his mother very well because uh, they died when he was young. Um, so it, the letters, they're all written from Francis's perspective perspective, so you get a glimpse into her personality, who's someone that my family never really knew. My mom never grew up with her grandparents um, on her dad's side, so it kind of gives a glimpse into who Frances was, and you get a, a good sense of what her personality was like um, that we would have never had without these letters. How did these letters change your thoughts on what you knew about your family? Well, they kind of shed a lot of light. Uh, not only on Frances' personality, but kind of the surrounding events uh, around her death and the death of uh, my great-grandfather, uh, Robin Thompson. So growing up, um, 
I never really knew 100% what had happened to them. So I remember the first story that kind of got passed around of the first instance of, of their fate was tied into a, a homework assignment I had in elementary school where I was supposed to write out a family tree. And so my mom helped me go through, you know, my relatives, like my mom and her brothers and then my grandparents. And we got to her grandparents, uh, Robin and Francis. And the story, at least at the time that I remember it, was that they died in a car crash um, when my grandfather was really young. Um, in retrospect, I think I might have confused that with another family story on my dad's side, but at least growing up most of the time, that's kind of what I thought had happened to them. And then uh, a little later on, probably when I was middle school age, um, there was the idea, at least, that Francis maybe had died from an abortion, and then Robin had been so distraught over this that he committed suicide. And then kind of the, the final story, which I thought was probably closest to the truth, happened after my grandfather passed away in 2009. Um, I think people were talking about family history more at the time. And so um, my mom had relayed that she thought what had happened is my great-grandmother Frances had had an affair with Clarence White, who she later married was her second husband and then um, my great-grandfather Robin had been distraught over that and had committed suicide so we had a lot of questions about what had happened to these to these two people um, and kind of as we dug more into researching my genealogy and and family's history we kind of uncovered more of the truth that way and these letters helped kind of personalize the story more Looking at faded old letters makes one think of a long-gone era where letter writing was the main way to communicate to distant friends and family. Often we see this as an idyllic time of picket fences and innocence. But just reading these letters and understanding the lives of the authors, we can see this is a wrong and naive assumption. Understanding the lives of those of the past, we can see that they lived a life full of modern problems. Francis's story is a heart-wrenching tale of loss, suicide, infidelity, accidental death, but also of love, hope, and the will to rise from the ashes. Hers is a story once lost. The skeletons were buried so far down the truth was lost for three generations. But through these letters we get to know Francis and can't help but fall in love with her spirit. She is a fighter, standing up for herself and trying to put her life back together after extreme loss. This story starts with Frances Hartland and her quickie marriage to a local boy, Robin Thompson. We don't know much about Robin Thompson, but we can piece together the events that led to his meeting Frances. Through census records, we were able to figure out that Robin and his brothers, Major and Ellsworth, were adopted by David and Rosalie Thompson in Wilmar, Minnesota by 1910. By 1920, the Thompsons are near Sandstone. Frances's parents, her father Nick Hartland, Mother Edith and brother Martin are in Friesland, Minnesota in 1911 after moving from East Grand Forks, Minnesota. In the March 1920 census, Frances and her mom are living in Montana. Her parents are separated maybe as early as 1915, and their subsequent divorce foreshadows chaos and loose ends to come. By April, Frances is back living with her father in Friesland. 
It all seems complicated, but the people and places set the stage for Robin and Francis's comet of a romance and Francis's first surviving letter. Robin and his brothers were known troublemakers around town. Robin's brother was known as an outlaw, according to local gossip. So it's no surprise that Nick objected to Francis marrying Robin. But on Francis's 18th birthday, June 28, 1924, the two wed. And the new couple does what countless other new couples do after defying their parents. They run. Francis's first letter is by turn sweet, contrite, vulnerable, and yet achingly lonely. Written on a Saturday, the newlyweds are living in exile in East Grand Forks, Minnesota, the place where Francis's parents met. It's hard to tell if the couple ran away immediately after the wedding or after some other fight with Nick. Dearest Daddy, haven't heard from you, so I'm going to write and explain everything. First, Dad, honestly, I'm sorry I ran away like I did and hope you'll forgive me. Will you? For I do love you, Daddy, and never intended to turn you down. I realize now where all the trouble was, but when you used to swear at me, I just couldn't stand it any longer. But I'm willing to forgive the past if you are. Are you? Apparently Robin, here called Bob, had gotten a letter from Nick but hadn't answered it yet. Francis tries to smooth over the trouble. Second, Dad, don't think Bob didn't want to answer your letter you mailed to Montana, for he would if he had gotten it. But it came after he left, and he never got it before last Sunday when his brother Al stopped off and gave it to him. He wrote you a letter not long ago, though. Didn't you get it? Bobby told me to write and explain. Frances makes her paces through some Minnesota niceties. How's the potato harvest coming? I think you like mushrooms. They're super cheap here, and I can send some home. But her letter takes a sad turn in its closing and reveals an 18-year-old who just wants to come home. Well, honestly, Daddy, there's not much to write. I only hope you'll forgive and forget. And now that I'm married, I'll turn over a new leaf. I really am getting real homesick and wish I was home. Because, Daddy, I never thought I'd really love you and miss you like I do. And you love your daughter, don't you? Let's not be like Uncle Jake and his girl. Please write soon. All my love, kisses and hugs to you. Your daughter and son, Francis and Bob. So I think the letter kind of reveals the relationship between Nick and Francis here. And it's kind of cool because it, it humanizes them mm-hmm. uh, outside of just their the story that we know about Francis and, and Robin and Nick and everybody. So you can kind of see already that they have kind of a contentious relationship. So there's already, at 18 years old, Francis is, you know, running away from home <laughs> and mm-hmm. then fighting with Nick basically uh, via the letter. But there's also kind of this um, this revealing part where she's she's just an 18 year old first time away from home and she just wants to come home and she kind of misses her dad Mm -hmm. yeah it they have such a relationship that is contentious and yet full of love yeah you can tell that uh you know probably like many uh teenage daughter and Mm -hmm. father relationship where they're gonna fight at times but it's it's more out of love than uh, any kind of discontent or ill feelings. Right. And also, uh, it just 
really kind of horrible that she refers to Robin as Bob. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, yeah, that's I mean, true. Uh, my my great grandfather's full name was Robin Adair Thompson, so he's named after Robin Adair was kind of a famous um, song from like the English folk song tradition. Um, so we we think he was named after the song, uh, but to be reduced to Bob or Bobby, ugh. Robin Adair is much better. Yeah, it's much cooler. It is. I agree. Robin and Francis make up with Nick and eventually return home. The next letter, postmarked November 10th, 1927, was written just after the couple moved to Minneapolis. Francis is happy with their temporary apartment. Their second child, Don, was just born a few weeks before on Halloween, and his big sister, Edie, gets a kick out of the streetcars that go right past the windows. But that undercurrent of loneliness permeates the letter. Dear folks, well, here I am in the big city of Minnie, and so far I like it fine. Only, of course, it's really lonesome all day. But today I managed to keep family busy, straightening around and washing. I have been alone since six this morning. Bob has to go real early, as he works in St. Paul now, and that's quite a way to go. This is the last letter before a string of events takes place between August 2nd and 4th in 1929. I knew that Robin had died on August 4th of that year, but I didn't have any details until I stumbled across an AP article in the Brainerd Daily newspaper titled, Two Notes and Bottle of Poison Explain Grim Tragedy of a Double Suicide in Minneapolis. By 1929, Robin is working as a baker for Rye Crisp in Minneapolis, and the family is living a few blocks away from the factory. In July, Frances spends a month away from home. We don't know why. But when she returns the last week of the month, Something's wrong with Robin. He's acting strangely. By the end of that week, Robin is living with Francis's brother. It's unclear if he was kicked out, but on the morning of Friday, August 2nd, he leaves early in the morning and tells Francis's brother that he has to go to court for something about his car. Later that day, Robin checks into a hotel with Helen McGinnis a married neighbor who lived in the same apartment complex as Robin and Francis. They check in under the pseudonym of Mr. and Mrs. Jack Kelly from Duluth. Later that night, the two write a note to Helen's husband, and they take strychnine. While the poison sets in, Robin writes a letter to Francis. It's now 310, and we have taken it now. I know you will forget us, as I know we will be happy. And that's more than we could be if we lived and had not each other. I think I'm going. Goodbye. The bodies of Robin and Helen aren't discovered until Sunday. The story becomes newspaper headlines in the Twin Cities and across the country. Reporters go to both Francis and Helen's husband for information. Francis sounds pissed rather than devastated. I had been away a month and I returned about a week ago. It was then I discovered that something was wrong with my husband. I will bury him. That's my duty. The two lovers reside for a time next to each other before they're buried. Frances does fulfill her duties and buries Robin at Hillside Cemetery. His final resting place has no headstone. My grandfather was two when Robin killed himself and his sister Edie was five. Thank you.
Wow, that's some really heavy news. Yeah, it's pretty stunning to kind of come across that that first headline because that one was from a, it was actually an AP article. I think it was public published in North Dakota. Um, so to have that kind of family secret kind of broadcast around the country is uh, just really kind of overwhelming at first mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. Like uh, like none of us, like I definitely didn't have any kind of clue that this had actually happened, that um, Robin had killed himself, but it was from an affair with another woman, mm-hmm. and they had this suicide pact. Which is not at all what you were told. No, no, completely different. Like, um, you know, the, the family story was that it had seemed like Francis had had the affair, which kind of drove Robin to suicide. Mm-hmm. But it turns out to be... The other opposite the way. The opposite way, right? So, you know, we had... Uh, nuggets of the truth but not the whole picture Mm -hmm. um so you have kind of that satisfactory feeling of having the whole picture or the whole story fall into place but also kind of this also kind of sad and terrifying thing that there's this strange love affair Mm -hmm. followed by a suicide Mm -hmm. and how that affects the family after that right it's pretty sad yeah so you also you know from the other letters you kind of get the sense that something's wrong anyhow so you have this kind of recurring theme from Frances that she's lonely um she's isolated she's away from her family living in the twin cities which to us doesn't seem like that big a deal but um you know she's not driving i'm assuming she probably doesn't have her own car it's not like she can just swing home anytime she wants mm-hmm. uh this is 1929 mm-hmm. so you know you can kind of get this feeling that Francis is already feeling lonely and isolated, so something, some sort of trouble's brewing on the horizon, and then you get kind of hit with this news that, you know, Robin was having an affair and then committed suicide over it. To and not in a way that is so devastating. Right, and had to be very almost humiliating for for Francis that. You know. He would rather be dead than be married to her. Right, which, you know, I think we as kind of rational people would think, you know, well, why not just get a divorce or run off with her or or leave Francis or whatever. But for whatever reason, he didn't feel like there was any way out, and neither did Helen McGinnis for that, that matter. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a really bizarre situation. Yeah, and to just imagine what she was feeling, just her whole world must have fell apart. Right. I mean, it uh, definitely, I think, kind of led to a spiral for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting that there's this rumor that she was the one having the affair with who would then become her second husband, Clarence White. That's appearing not to be true at all. It was really Robin having the affair. And really kind of Clarence ends up looking like the good guy in the story, mm-hmm. as we kind of see from some of the other letters. A year later, we find Frances in the 1930s census, living in Minneapolis as a servant in the house of her employer. She is far from her young children, who were separated and taken in by different relatives across the state. The death of Robin caused her family to split in two. It must have been devastating as a young mom being unable to support your own children. 
having to live far away to pay for their keep, unable to keep them near. It's a decision something many parents today couldn't even imagine having to make. Francis's life changed quickly shortly after the census was taken. She became a wife once again. A year or two so after the death of Robin, Francis married Clarence White. She was now Francis White. With this, Francis gets her wish to bring her family back together again. She moved away from the Twin Cities, away from her tragic loss and heartbreak. She moved home, living near her father and brother, once again a family. But as with life, all was not perfect. There was conflict between Nick, Francis's father, and her new husband. Clarence was a Catholic. Clarence was often out of work. Remember, the Depression had just started. Times were hard. Money was tight. The Clarence and Francis White family moved. They moved away from her father, moved to Clarence's family in St. Peter, Minnesota. Nick Hartland had a strong influence on his daughter. Like any father, he wanted what was best for her. And like any father-daughter relationship, what he thought she should do was not reciprocated. Nick didn't like Clarence. He wanted to be near his grandchildren and want to trump any influence Clarence had. This is an ongoing struggle between father and daughter. Nick tries to push his influence, but Francis fights back. Clearly not one to give in to her father, Francis wrote a letter telling her father to back off. Dear Dad, you ask if Don could come down. Well, here's just the way I feel. And of course you're already saying bosh. But nevertheless, I'm Don's mother, believe it or not. You know, Dad, when Clarence and I were first married, we always said that we, when we had enough money, he was going to adopt them. Well, after a number of years of struggling, we have at last landed a steady job. So, of course, that was our first step. After September 1st, 1935, Edith and Donald will be legally clearances. So you might as well accustom yourself to the fact and start calling them white. And if Donald does come up there, you are not to call him Donald Thompson like you did last summer. Despite the hardships and conflict with her father, Frances had a deep capacity for love and forgiveness. She stood her ground and fought for her family, but ultimately deeply loved her father. Despite their fighting, she wanted to keep the peace. She wanted to be a family. November of 1936, she wrote to her father, inviting him and her brother to St. Peter for Thanksgiving. Dear folks, your letter received the other day and sure was glad to hear from you. And before I go any further, I want you to get this and get it straight. If you can go west for Christmas, you can come here for Thanksgiving, and I'm planning on it. So no excuses. And it would be nice if Bug could come too. And then, just for once, we'd all have dinner together. We have never done that, and why not this year? Please try and make it. Shortly after Thanksgiving, Nick is called down to St. Peter to be with Francis, who has a serious illness according to the local papers. Actually, Francis attempted an abortion and developed a serious infection. Sepsis set in. Francis dies in the hospital on December 6, 10 days after Thanksgiving. 
Sadly, this is also the day that my grandfather learns that Clarence isn't his real dad. His distraught sister tells him the truth, that his dad was Robin Thompson. My grandfather Don shuts down and blocks out memories of his mother for years. He doesn't learn how Robin died until decades later. Nick Hartland gets custody of Don and Edith, and he raises them. interesting how Frances sort of paints Nick, her dad, as the bad guy in the letters. And I want to know more about, there's a sentence that where she talks about how Nick was telling Don, your grandfather, that his name was Donald Thompson. Tell me about that story. Yeah, so that, that one letter points out that... Um, Francis was was mad at Nick for for telling my grandfather that his last name really wasn't White; it was Thompson. And so it's very telling because up to that point, my my grandfather had no idea that Clarence White wasn't his dad. Mm-hmm. And so Francis is trying to protect my grandfather from learning this information until he's old enough. He probably was, you know, maybe five or six at the time of, of that letter. And so, you know, she's trying to, you know, protect him, I'm sure, from the reality of what happened to his father, because that's going to be that's going to be a hard story to tell a kid, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. So in a way, like like Nick, Nick wanted my grandfather to know who he was mm-hmm. um, and was, you know, maybe a little backhandedly trying to leak the information a little bit, maybe mm-hmm. trying to force the conversation or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, tied into that. He didn't like Clarence white, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and sadly, like from that letter, then Francis says that they were going to tell the kids when they're old enough to understand and appreciate what Clarence had kind of done for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they never did. Mm-hmm. And so my grandfather finds out that his real dad isn't Clarence White on the day that his mom dies. Mm-hmm. Because his sister, I'm sure, probably just had some sort of breakdown moment and kind of felt like she had to tell him. Mm-hmm. And it kind of caused a, caused kind of a complete mental block my grandfather where he didn't really remember um, his mom after that. Um, and it took a long time for him, I think, to kind of come to grips with losing his mom and then and then being raised by Nick and other relatives. and How old was he at that point? Uh, let see. If I remember correctly, I think he was nine. So he should remember her. Yeah, he should probably remember remember his mom more clearly than he did. But um, according to my grandma, he really, he really didn't start remembering more things until it sounded like it was their honeymoon. They went down to St. Peter to find his mom's grave. And he, start, he started to remember where he went to school. He went to school at a Catholic school. Um, he remembered the neighborhood more and could remember, I think, probably bits about his mom, but probably not a lot of information, mm-hmm. um, which is super sad because mm-hmm. um, nobody else really knew Francis very well. 
and um, you know I guess that's one of the one of the benefits of having the letter so at least we get a glimpse into her personality something that that we wouldn't have been aware of without those letters it's really interesting how the letters sort of show this legacy of trying to um, run from the truth. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of really sounds like they're trying to escape the narrative of the story a bit, right? Like they're... Sorry. <laughs> they're trying to, you know, kind of run away from, from this very tragic past. I mean, you know, these are certainly things that probably anybody we would want to put behind them. Mm -hmm. Um but also, in a way, it's sad to walk away from that because I think to kind of really understand my family better, you have to know some of these tragedies and kind of be able to pass them on and accept them. Um, or else you're just kind of, you're trying to live in a, your own created reality and I just don't think that's healthy or wise down the road. And you're, you know, you're not really honoring the legacy of these people by, by covering up this past. Well, since now we've explored everything that's kind of contain these letters from my great-grandmother and, you know, all the sad stories and tragedies related. Let's kind of talk about preservation methods for family heirlooms and letters. So, Carolyn, uh, what would you recommend to store the letters? Well, you, usually the acid-free, lignin-free cardboard boxes and acid-free, lignin-free folders are what are used most of the time. Um, often in museums and archives, this is what they'll use. The key here is that you don't want the letters to be touching anything that has acid in it to, or anything that will deteriorate the letters. So acid-free, lignin-free paper is what should be touching it at all times. So after we store the letters in the acid-free folders, we'll also put them into acid-free boxes. Um, but one of the keys here is that we don't want the folders to be loose with a lot of movement in the boxes themselves. So like in my example with my great-grandmother's letters, I only have a few of them. So I'd only have a few folders in the box, but we want to take either some spare or scrap acid-free folder material or acid-free tissue paper and crumple it up and put it in the box and make sure the folders are resting upright in the box and not slanting or leaning because we don't want the, the letters to fold or bend. Yeah, you want it upright, often like a file cabinet. So you'll take the folders like in a file cabinet and put them in there in the boxes and just have them upright. If they're leaning to one side or the other, you want to adjust that. And then uh, where should we where should we store those boxes? Well, usually they're stored um, oftentimes in people's basements or attics, and this is not not ideal. So consistent temperature, consistent humidity, right? Right. So if the environment is comfortable for you, it's comfortable for the paper. 
So you'll want it around 70 degrees and about 55% humidity is ideal. And uh, from there, you'll probably want to store the boxes um, in a darker environment. So it's better to store the boxes in, say, a closet, um, a closet that's on an inside wall. So if a closet's on the outside wall, it's going to be more susceptible to climate change. So if it gets colder outside, that closet indoor space is going to be colder. If it gets hotter, it's going to be hotter. So we'll try to find a closet on an interior wall so it's going to be um, more stable temperature and humidity wise. And it's also dark, so it's going to uh, prevent light damage to the letters as well. Yeah, if there's a light in the closet, you want it turned off. Um, but the boxes will help with that, so there'll be a lid on the box and that will help keep the light out. So you might see in a show like History Detectives or one of the other family research shows, uh, archivists or librarians using uh, the white gloves to handle objects. Uh, for paper material, uh, it's kind of general practice now in archives and libraries not to use the white gloves. Uh, the reason for this is because wearing the gloves give you less of a tactile feeling on the paper itself. So if you're handling fragile documents, you might be more apt to actually rip or tear a letter holding it uh, holding it with a glove on rather than with your bare hands. And so a good standard practice would be to make sure you wash and dry your hands really well before handling uh, any kind of paper material that, that you're looking to preserve for a foreseeable future and um, reduce and minimize your contact with it. Well, thanks for joining us for the very first podcast of My Favorite Family Heirloom. Uh, it was kind of fun going through and exploring my family's history and also learning a bit about caring for and preserving these letters. We're excited to hear about your family heirlooms and the stories they tell. If you want more information or to contact us, go to memorykeepersguide.com, check us out on Facebook, or find us on Twitter. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jeff. And I'm Carolyn. And join us again on our next episode of My Favorite Family Heirloom.